Hello, and welcome to this episode of The Lancet Voice. I'm Gavin Cleaver, it's September 2021, and we're very pleased to have you on board. I just wanted to mention, before we got going, that we've been doing this podcast for about 18 months now, and we're very keen to hear your feedback on it. What would you like to hear? What have you enjoyed so far? What do you think we could improve? You can email the team on podcasts at lancet.com. That's podcasts at lancet.com with your thoughts, and we'd love to hear from you. On this episode, we're talking about the humanitarian situation in Afghanistan and refugee health. Later on, Professor Mohammed Zaman, a biomedical engineer from Boston University, is going to be chatting to me and Jessamy about how STEM graduates can help revolutionise refugee health and what's changed since the COVID-19 pandemic. First, though, we're going to talk about the humanitarian needs in Afghanistan following the change of government with two authors of a recent comment in The Lancet. I'm joined for this discussion by Dr. Mohammed Hakmal and Dr. Ayesha Ahmad. Dr. Hagmal was a senior Afghan government official and is a former leader of health programs across five provinces in Afghanistan. He's now a lecturer in public health at the University of London. Dr. Ahmad is a senior lecturer in global health at St. George's University London and an honorary lecturer at UCL. Welcome to the podcast, Mohammed and Ayesha. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. Obviously, this is a somber topic and um, difficult to talk about, but it's an important conversation to have. It, it can seem in the news over the last few weeks that the scale of the kind of humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan is, is overwhelming to think about. What are the most important factors to bear in mind? And how is the situation now that the last of the uh, foreign forces have left? Well, I think it's a, a difficult situation now in the ground for the people. You know, so it's uh, something, you know, but full of fear people are. And because the, especially, you know, as we are discussing, you know, the humanitarian side, 90% of the clinic and hospital funded by foreign aid have not been operating since the donor suspended their uh, funds to Afghanistan on September 25th as Afghanistan health system has highly defended on foreign aid. So the World Bank on 25th of August, you know, they announced that they will be not, uh, there will be no any more funding, you know, from the donor side to the health sector. So this is something concerned people. And also it, there was a sudden change, you know, uh, in the government. So the bank has been not operating properly. So people are also facing, you know, shortage of food, shortage of monies, you know, like no cash also in the ground. And so, th- so these are all the concerns that people are now you know, like suffering. And there was also big, you know, like uh, brain drain in the country. So majority of the people, unfortunately, they were working with the international community. They also left. So this increased, you know, the level of stress among the people. So the increase in poverty is a, is a serious issue? Well, increase of poverty, unfortunately, these days, you know, the level of poverty increased to 90%. So 90% of people Afghans are living under poverty line. And 50% of the Afghans, unfortunately, they are faced, you know, with the, uh, with the shortage of food. And I was just reading, you know, the United Nations report. So two days back, you know, the head of the United Nations visited Afghanistan and he found that 50% of the Afghans are facing, you know, shortage of food. So they need, you know, uh, urgent, you know, international support. It's the same also for the children, you know, so like uh, 35% of the children, they are also facing, you know, shortage of foods and nutritious also for them. So pregnant women, you know, as I mentioned, also the hospitals are closed, you know, and especially in the remote area where 75% of the Afghans are living. So these are all, you know, the level of, so these are factors, you know, which uh, created a kind of uh, stress in the communities. 
Yeah, I would add that the humanitarian issues that we're discussing here, these are magnified and uh, from pre-existing uh, humanitarian issues as well. So these needs are becoming um, even more important to try to prevent from worsening in the in the current situations with the changes that's going on. And I'd also add about the mental health aspects as well, or all the factors that are associated with the humanitarian needs at present, poverty, hunger, displacement, these also have mental health components attached to them. And without adequate interventions, there will be long-term um, impacts, which will further uh, increase the vulnerability of the population. Yeah, yeah, really important to bear in mind. The, the health system in Afghanistan is quite heavily uh, foreign aid dependent. And there's been obviously large health gains in the last 20 years, which have been highlighted in the media. But in terms of kind of capacity building and infrastructure, has enough been done to secure these gains or, or are they at risk? Well, in terms of last two decades gain, you know, so they, as you mentioned, you know, so there was enough support in terms of capacity building, you know, so infrastructure has been also started something from scratch. And in terms of maternal mortality and child mortality, like maternal mortality, uh, around 70%, you know, there was a reduction in the maternal mortality. Afghanistan in 2001-2 had, you know, the highest maternal mortality rate in the world, child mortality rate in the world. So now what happened? Maternal mortality rate, as I mentioned, uh, reduced almost, you know, by sorry, by 65%. Child mortality under five uh, by 30%. Uh, so it is the same, you know, number of clinic, you know, uh, during 2002 and three, you know, only 10% of the Afghan had access to the health services. While now it's almost uh, like 85% of the Afghan, you know, they have access to the basic health care services in their remote area. Number of health facility also increased. In 2002 and three, we had 400 health facility in Afghanistan. So now, uh, so like last month, you know, the number of uh, functional health facility was uh, 3,600, you know, so unbelievable, you know, increase in the number of clinics. The, it was the same also for the midwife, you know, and uh, 2002 or three, we had very limited number of midwife. So during this last two decades, at least we had one midwifery school, community midwifery school in each province. So this increased, you know, the number of skilled uh, staff as well. So it was also, we got enough support, in, uh, in international support for the capacity building in long term. So we have now, hundred and hundred, you know, like most of public health, we have PhD holders in public health, in the clinical part, the number of trained clinicians have been significantly increased. Several things have been increased, you know, in different aspects, you know. Uh, but unfortunately, now the sudden announcement of the World Bank that they suspended their foreign aid. So this put all of us, you know, under confusions and we are not very sure what will happen in the future. So that's why we publish on this article and we request, you know, for the urgent humanitarian uh, assistance. Yeah, and even though the, the, the country has been dependent on foreign aid, um, the delivery has been uh, significantly uh, improved because of the efforts of non-governmental organizations. So, and these NGOs are essential to responding to the health needs of the Afghan civilian population because they understand the social cultural context. Um, and so it's very important and essential for continued health delivery to continue to support these uh, national and international NGOs as well. What role do you both see the neighbouring countries around Afghanistan playing in the months to come? And, and how can they best be supported? Well, um, in terms of, you know, if we talk about the health sector, 
Uh, Afghanistan was also highly dependent on medical tourism because many Afghans, they were either going to India, Iran or Pakistan or Central Asia country. And the annual expenditures on the medical tourism was between 300 million up to 400 million US dollars. Uh, now, these days, when we have, you know, like a uh, problem also in provision of health services inside the country, unfortunately, despite the fact that the level of poverty has been suddenly increased, still many people will be also traveling when we have, you know, like op open flight or open roads, you know, to the neighboring countries to receive the services. So this service will be increased. And unfortunately, uh, the, the we... We were not able, you know, to uh, have, you know, to, to have a proper development in terms of the, in the private sector to reduce this uh, uh, medical tourism in a levels, you know, to have a very good hope also for the future. So we try our best during the last two decades, but unfortunately in medical tourism, still we were depending on these foreigner neighboring countries. And I think that will still continue. And I hope, you know, the neighboring country can also provide, you know, a level of support to the Afghan when they are traveling and going there, you know, to give them a kind of exemptions or maybe if not exemption, you know, a kind of discount uh, in provision and receiving the health services. And so, and if there is also possibility to donate, you know, some medicine and, uh, and others medical related stuff to the health system in Afghanistan, because during these changes, uh, there was conflict in different countries, uh, different provinces inside Afghanistan, and we, our some of our hospitals was totally destroyed because of the conflict. So now, people may go a lot, as Aisha mentioned, you know, mental health is also one of the area, unfortunately, in Afghanistan, we don't have, you know, qualified health staff for that one. And with the sudden changes, uh, sudden change also in the country, you know, those confusion and also this some sort of, you know, crisis in the country, this will also increase the level of mental health disease in the country. So if people are traveling to our neighbor countries, our expectations on the humanitarian grounds from our neighboring countries also to provide, you know, as much support to the Afghan patients when they are going there. An essential part of the, the mental health response is safety and security as well. Um, so that's an essential component of humanitarian passages for populations that are traveling or who are displaced. When we talk about humanitarian crises around the world, these obviously most strongly affect the most vulnerable groups. So what would the health prospects for these most vulnerable groups be currently in Afghanistan? As you mentioned worldwide, in Afghanistan also, during the last four decades conflict in the countries in diff different, you know, through different, you know, way. So children and women are the more victimized population, you know, so they they have been, you know, like victims most of the time. And so now when the international community also suspended their foreign aids and up and up in the health system, so and women's and children, they need, you know, basic services. If they have been deprived from the uh, health services in the country. So this will also increase, you know, the level of stress or the level of tensions on women and children. And then this deprived population or high vulnerable population will be half more vulnerable. So that's why we are just lobbying, you know, for this humanitarian support to increase, you know, the, the level of uh, crisis in the country with international humanitarian support. And we don't want to see, you know, our children and also women to suffer a lot because they have suffered a lot during the last two decades. And these are the high vulnerable population so far. I would say that in the context of humanitarian crisis and, and conflict, that every 
every member of the population is vulnerable, but there are certain groups within the population that are exceptionally vulnerable and those structural factors um, are social cultural as well and need, need to be understood. And we can draw on existing um, experiences to understand who will be the most vulnerable, but also what will happen if they are health needs. And I'm talking health in a very broad way. So prevention of domestic violence is included in that as well. So we've been talking very broadly about humanitarian aid efforts and obviously the uh, the problems that Afghanistan now faces in terms of getting funding and aid into the country. How can these humanitarian aid efforts remain effective going forward? What has to happen? Well, as Aisha mentioned in Afghanistan, 90% of the health service delivery has been implemented by the non-governmental organization, either national or international. And also there was also a kind of international organization. They were also overseeing, you know, the health services. So we call it, you know, third parties. So independent organization was even doing, you know, the monitoring and evaluations to see that the international, you know, uh, communities fund through those NGOs and government is also properly spent. So we have that structure fortunately in place, already in place. And so our expectation is now on the, from the humanitarian, from the international community is to resume, you know, their uh, international, their fund and spend it through these already existing, you know, structure of the non-governmental organizations and also provide, you know, fund also for these third parties where that they are also doing, you know, monitoring and evaluations or they are overseeing, you know, the expenses of the health services, quality of the health services. So that will also help us to make sure that people also have access to these uh, services rather than waiting for this long uh, extended dialogues you know, between politicians. So we, yeah, we today we are here just to talk about the humanitarians and that the mechanism is already in place. So we have, you know, these two organizations, so two side of organizations, humanitarian organizations with international experience. So they were also working 25 years back, you know, during the previous Taliban government. And they are also working in different other countries under conflict, like in Syria, in uh, Iraq and Sudan, you know, in uh, different African countries. So our expectation is also to have, you know, that experience and also to use the available opportunities in the ground. So this will also help us to reduce, you know, the level of crisis in the country. So it will increase, you know, job opportunity for the people. Many people will also have job in, in the country. So, and they will also have access in their own area. For your information in Afghanistan, 75% of the population, they are living in remote area. So we are not very concerned about the people inside the main city because in the main city, they also we have also a private sector. So in some way, one way or another way, they will have access to the services. Our main concern is to in the remotest area where private sector is not existed at all there and where people are living uh, are, high, are suffering a lot, you know, from and they suffer a lot during this conflict as well, you know, during the last four decades. And the only op- best option for us is, you know, to support, to provide fund uh, to those humanitarian organizations that they have experience, they are in place, and they already have, you know, local staff. So, so this, I, I hope, you know, the international community will take this action quicker rather than later because the, if we uh, don't have, you know, services in the ground for some time, we will be also losing these health workers and they will be either, you know, flying, you know, to moving to Pakistan to other neighboring country or coming to these capital of the city. Then it will be difficult for them, you know, to send them back, you know, to reorganize every staff. So, so health must be the focus of the um, international community and there, can no, there cannot be any form of recovery of the country unless there's a healthy population. 
Yeah, that brings us on actually really nicely to my next question, which is asking about the kind of responsibilities of the international community going forward. How should the international community currently be acting towards Afghanistan? I th- what I think what we are hearing about women right, child right, and all, all those rights in the world, I think uh, the Afghan, the expectation of the Afghan is to see those, you know, kind of, you know, support that they are providing to different other countries during the conflict also inside Afghanistan, because now we... We, we economically we are also very poor these days and uh, 90% of the people are living under poverty lines and our health system was already shocked you know stuck also through this COVID-19 COVID-19 and then we lost also some of the health workers to with the COVID-19 during the fighting with COVID-19 and so now our expectation is also to resume back those things, you know, and bring, you know, whatever they have in their principle and put it in practice in Afghanistan and ensure that, well, this community is not only making, you know, noises to provide the services or to support, you know, children, women in different aspects from the humanitarian side, also in the ground. When we're talking about health needs, it, it can be quite um, easy to slip into thinking about data and how many deaths occur because of polio, how many yeah. people are, how, the transmission of COVID-19, how many people uh, need to require surgery, etc. But we also need to understand as well about the, the lived experiences. So internationally, it can be quite difficult sometimes to understand the local experiences, the individual lived experiences of living with health burdens in a context that is already weighted by humanitarian health needs and various other factors as well, such as uh, previous decades of conflict. Uh, So these additional health burdens that then place further burdens on the post-conflict health system um, when the population are already suffering from poor health. How do you both see the next few months and years playing out? What do you hope will happen? Well, there is two scenarios for us. One is, you know, the best scenario that the international community will resume, you know, their fund, you know, and we will be having, you know, back, you know, these health systems operating, you know. And and this is the achievement, you know. Let me give you a few examples. Every day in Afghanistan, only with this international fund, you know, we, we have, you know, 180, you know, cesarean section per day. We have around uh, 520, you know, surgery, major surgery cases. And we have around 50,000, you know, children are treated daily, you know, visiting, you know, the health facility. We have around 3,000, you know, institutional delivery. So these are the figures. So if international community resume back, you know, their fund, you know, and then uh, we will be having, you know, all those things in place. If not, as I mentioned in the beginning, maternal mortality was the, the highest in the world. Child mortality was the highest in the world. So now if you stop something, we will be going back to that war scenario that we had, you know, in 2001 or two. So now the international community also has two options either to invest on their previous investment because they invested a lot. We have been already grateful, you know, for their support because they started something from the scratch. As I mentioned, 65% reduction in mortality, maternal mortality. It's a huge number. It's a huge. And then 30% in child mortality, you know, increasing number of clinics, you know, everything in place. So if 
they started these, you know, like the foreign aid and you see, you know, the situation and one economically, the government will not be able, you know, to support that one. So it will be suddenly uh, collapse. And this this will also create challenges for the world in terms of COVID-19 because COVID-19 cases will be increased in Afghanistan, unfortunately, so far. I think it's between one to two percent people already got, you know, the vaccine. So if 98 percent of the Afghans, they don't have, you know, vaccine, COVID, they have not received the vaccine. And it's also the same for the polio last year, Unfortunately, we have around 300 polio positive cases. Although before that, we were just moving forward, you know, to eliminate the polio cases from Afghanistan. So now, if the international community don't, you know, uh, start, you know, back, you know, their support, so number of polio cases will be risk for the world. Number of TB cases will also especially for those people that they are immigrating to different countries, they will be bringing, you know, those TB cases, you know, to different countries. It's measles as well, you know, these child mortality, as I mentioned, and also the major surgery, like really around 800 people will be losing their life because they will be not having access, you know, to this cesarean sections especially, you know, the pregnant women that they really need it, and also the other major surgery. So it's big, you know, big, 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 big lose, you know, if they, if we don't get, you know, the support. Yeah, if there's sufficient humanitarian intervention, then there could be potential for stability and opportunity, but that needs to ensure both the availability and also the accessibility of healthcare services. Maybe if we want to talk about the COVID-19 a little bit, so like in terms of capacity building, you know, capacities, so we have diagnostic facility in all those major cities in Afghanistan, especially these five regional cities. Uh, in terms of treatment, you know, we also have a system in place. In terms of surveillance, you know, case detection was also very very good also, just before this uh, recent change. And now, if the international community stop their support, we will not. We will have a kind of disruption, sudden disruption in supply of medicines, medical supply. So everything will be somehow, you know, in terms of diagnostic facility, because the it's not only machine. Machine also needs, you know, a kind of regent, you know, also to operate. So if we don't have regent, you know, for those already existing lab, lab, if we don't have trained staff in place, if we don't have, you know, others, you know, surveillance system in the ground, so it will be again, you know, big challenge for the neighboring country, as I mentioned here. But now with a very small support, we will be able to provide, you know, to, to control, you know, COVID-19 because Afghanistan's response, you know, if we compare it with the neighboring country was much better than other country. So now, now it depends on the available resources because the health personal staff you know they have they were successful they were very good if they don't receive you know we will be much worse than other country and even the country in the region will also suffer a lot from our side yeah and we mentioned about mental health aspects previously but i would also add that in addition to the availability and accessibility of the treatment of general mental disorders that the country is also experiencing and has experienced collective trauma. And there needs to be sufficient culturally appropriate interventions to be able to to understand these these aspects and on a long-term basis. Well, I'd like to thank you both for talking with me today. It's a very difficult subject, but it's important we have these these conversations and then talk about the problems and their solutions. So, uh, Thank you both very much, and I wish you both the best for the future. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks again to Mohammed and Aisha for sharing their thoughts with us there. There's so much to bear in mind. We covered there, of course, health in humanitarian crises, and an important aspect of that is protecting the health 
of people forced to flee their homes. Professor Mohamed Zaman of Boston University is a professor of bioengineering at the University of Boston, and he spoke to us about the changing health needs of refugees during the COVID-19 pandemic and how STEM graduates can help to revolutionize refugee health. So, Mohammed, thanks so much for, for joining us today. Uh, I, I wanted to start off by talking really about the kind of changing health needs of refugees over the last 18 months. We've talked a lot on this podcast about the physical and social aspects of the COVID pandemic. And, you know, the COVID pandemic has affected the most vulnerable people and refugees are the most vulnerable people. So this, these effects have been kind of multiplied on them. What are your thoughts over the last 18 months on how COVID has affected refugees? And, and how do you think the kind of status of being a refugee has been affected by the pandemic? So first of all, let's let's try to separate a few technical terms. So there are refugees who are sort of across the border in another country where they have no political, social, financial agency. And, and they may be in camps, they may be in cities and in urban areas. Then there are people like in Yemen who are citizens who are not sort of necessarily crossing the border, but themselves are displaced, right? So they are forcibly displaced people there as well. And then there are people who have not moved, but the borders move or or the state's policy moves and, and basically makes them stateless. So, for example, the Bengali community in Pakistan is an example of that. They've always been living there, but are essentially stateless because, well, they are considered to be sympathizers of Bangladesh, even though they were part of Pakistan. And, and so, so there are different sort of groups of these forcibly displaced people who are, are in, in, in many, many countries, as many as perhaps 70 or 75 million people all over the world. The, the pandemic has really hit them on, on several levels. So one is, of course, the fact that there is a sort of uh, infection and people who are vulnerable are more exposed to infectious diseases. There's certainly an element of mental health, uh, stress and tremendous anxiety, worrying about the fact that whether they would get vaccination or not, uh, whether they would get their jobs back or not. But then there's the other element of the collapse of the informal economy on which many of the refugees belong. So in some of our work in, in Uganda and South Sudan, when the lockdowns happened, basically the informal economy in some of the camps completely collapsed which meant that people had nothing to eat, literally nothing to eat. And they were forced to go back in case of uh, Uganda and South Sudan, that people ended up coming back, many people from Uganda back to South Sudan, only to find the country that they left to be in a much worse state than when they left off initially, right? So there's that element of being moving again to a place that might be even worse than a refugee camp, if you can imagine that. And then remember that there is the vulnerability and there's the political agency. And one of the things that I, I, I find very disturbing is that you have sort of this vaccine nationalism and vaccine inequity. But in countries, you also have inequity, right? So you may have a vaccine rollout. Everybody gets it except the refugees. Everybody gets it except the stateless. So that element also further increases both the risk of infection, but also this, this tremendous sense of exclusion, of marginalization, of, of othering the groups that are already struggling. So I think all of these things work synergistically. They work sort of hand in hand. And it, it's very hard to separate the mental from the social, from the socio-political and economic and the health. And they all reinforce each other, unfortunately, even though there is 
data or there's not a lot of data uh, demonstrating the total impact on refugee health. Part of it is we haven't collected it. Part of it is some things have worked well. But I think the long-term impact, both psychosocial and also the societal engagement is is really um, is really tremendous. It's really important to bear in mind, isn't it, that when we talk about distributing vaccines to low and middle-income countries, and obviously there has been a massive disparity in vaccination distribution around the world. Even when those vaccination doses get distributed to these lower middle income countries, they might not necessarily reach refugees. No, not at all. Not at all. As a matter of fact, it's more a case of that not happening than happening, right? So until very recently in Pakistan, for example, as I mentioned, the Bengalis were not eligible to get vaccination. In many cases, it was Jordan that sort of initiated this vaccine uh, equity system for anybody. But that was sort of the exception and not the norm for vaccination. We all saw in early summer this whole issue of the, the conflict in Israel and Palestine and the vaccine associations with that, whether they were sending it, whether they were closer to expiry dates or not, and all of those kinds of things, and whether there were some kind of issues there. So it unfortunately has become very local. So there's a global disparity, but then there's a local challenge as well that is often at the whim and the political sort of uh, decision-making, which is extremely problematic and and, um, increases sort of both marginalization and vulnerability. Apart from this broad kind of wider distribution of vaccines around the world, what, what do you think has to happen for refugees to be prioritized for vaccination? Is it a case of messaging? Is it a case of, of NGO action? What do you think? So I think it's, 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 there are several things. First of all, I think uh, trying to think in a, in a very pragmatic way is important, but you have to combine sort of the humanity and pragmatism together, right? So the humanity and the decent thing to do is that everybody should have equal right. But then you also have the public health messaging that, look, you can't have a group of people who are already very vulnerable, not having some of the most essential tools we have, because that puts everybody at risk, right? So even if you were to look at it from a purely pragmatic standpoint, it's a good decision. It's a good policy. And I think that has to go hand in hand with that. The other thing that has to happen is that the countries have to feel, because they are basically controlling that, that they are by giving vaccines to refugees doesn't mean deprioritizing anybody else, right? So you have to create an equitable system because there's often this kind of hysteria, often this kind of feeling that if they get it, other people who are bona fide citizens, whatever that may mean, uh, will not get it. I think that sense of comfort, that sense of sort of uh, reassuring its, uh, its group of citizens is absolutely important to say that this is actually for everybody and it's not sort of taking anybody's uh, right uh, or rightful share away. So I think if you have those kinds of things, it is possible. But there's the other things as well, Gavin, that are often not appreciated and those are investing in systems that are allowing sort of efficiency. So even in the United States here, we have sort of lots of vaccine losses, right? So you, they, they, they get wasted, they get sort of not stored properly, the uh, states that don't need as many get it. I think part of it also happens, we don't hear about it as much, but also happens at the at in-country level in, in low and middle income countries as well. And sort of really trying to make sure that you minimize the losses can sort of really stretch whatever little resources they have in vaccines a little longer as well. We've seen for the longest time, for example, this issue that Pfizer and Moderna vaccines can go to low and middle income countries because, we are, well, you don't have the infrastructure in place, the cold chains and things like that. And that's, I think, an important lesson for science and technology to really contribute in this area to create and allow for the infrastructure that that allows for the absorption of new technologies and increase equity there.
Moving on from COVID-19 as much as we can, of course, it seems to be the spectre that hangs over all of our conversations. Uh, you gave a fascinating lecture to Boston University uh, talking about the kind of absence of STEM graduates, of STEM disciplines, of, of, of scientific engineering, of medical thinking from refugee health over the last few decades. Tell us a little bit about that. Has refugee health not moved on in the last few years? And, and, and how, could, uh, how could these extra disciplines help? So refugee studies or displacement studies has been taught in political science and in international relations, perhaps in anthropology, sociology, um, in history as well. And then you have the public health side of it. But in this entire sort of, uh, I would say, spectrum, what is missing is basic science. Is what is missing is technology, um, engineering, and there's several reasons for that. One is, of course, the fact that people think that these problems are there, there's nothing new to be discovered. These are uh, sort of implementation problems, and there's some truth to that, but not quite. As some of our work and others have shown, that there are actually unique scientific questions that need to be solved. Antimicrobial resistance in refugee camps is as an example of that. We often talk about this sort of aspect of one health, where environmental, human, and animal health really interface and, and leads to new sort of discoveries, new genetic changes in pathogens, new yeah, sort of. Yeah. So, so why why are refugees more? Um, risk from antimicrobial resistance? Yeah, so so you have several factors. So you have sort of really sort of this perfect storm, if I could use sort of that uh, overused analogy. You already have people who have underlying vulnerability. They are uh, exposed to diseases because they're living in a very concentrated area. Diseases spread fast. You also have no primary healthcare system that really takes care of this. Then you have sort of the exposure to environmental degradation, right? So it could be because of conflict. It could be because of sewage. It could, it could be because of lack of wastewater. And the fact is that there is lack of sort of awareness of what are the appropriate antibiotics to take. So you have a lot of over-the-counter prescriptions. You also have people who are not taking it adequately long enough. And on top of this, you have the presence of poor quality and substandard medicine that really contribute to the problem even further, right? So you have all of these factors. So there's not one factor, but all of these factors that contribute together and create this problem. Um, I was, I was ca- talking to a colleague from WHO yesterday who sort of put it very well, said that antimicrobial resistance is not a disease. It's a systems problem, right? It's not like polio. It's not like hepatitis. It's not like cancer. It is a systems issue. So you could have a disease driven by a bacterial pathogen that may be resistant, that may not be resistant, all of those kinds of things. So systems problems require a systems level understanding. And that takes me to my other point is that in some ways, that's why science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and medicine really have to think of these as systems problems. So one issue was, as I mentioned earlier, the fact that people think that, well, there are no new science problems here. So that's one. The second reason is that for the longest time, we have done science in the lab or engineering in a very, I would say, clean, controlled experiment kind of a way, which doesn't quite work in these kind of complex situations. So we really have to do a rethinking of the, the public health challenges uh, in a different way. And that's why I personally and many of my colleagues love to work with ethicists and sociologists and, and humanists, because these are complex social problems. And then final reason, I think, which is uh, important to, to recognize is that Research is driven by funding. We haven't had sort of really those kind of incentives that are needed to do that. When I was an undergraduate about 20 years ago, global health was not sort of flavor du jour as it is now. And that is because the funding nature in sciences has changed. There are new players, Gates Foundation, Wellcome Trust. They were already there. Well, Gates wasn't there, but Wellcome was there. But, but sort of their movement towards science and technology and engineering has created a new generation of people. That hasn't happened in refugee health. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I guess one of the things as well I wanted to talk to you about is that it, it seems there's been a kind of, not attitude change, but attitudes seem to be slowly hardening towards refugees in, in high-income countries. And it's been a kind of situation that's developed over over the last few decades, I suppose. But as as you've pointed out, the number of refugees is not falling. You know, it, it's growing. The, the need to, to house people around the world is growing. So how do you think high-income countries can kind of address this, this attitude, this... Um, this disparity between their actions and what needs to happen. Absolutely. So, so let's put that in context. So in 1980, um, and for several years after that, the United States couldn't fill its refugee quota. It was well over 250,000 a year, so somewhere in between 200 and 250,000. The number came down to almost four or five or 10,000 in 2020, right? So you, I mean, so you had sort of going from almost 250,000 to just a few thousand in a matter of like a generation and a half. Part of it has to do with sort of the political climate, which I think we are all seeing in Europe, in the United States, in Australia and elsewhere. I think part of it also has to do with the frustrations of many low income countries to use this rhetoric and say, look, just because we happen to be next to a place that has refugees, it shouldn't just be our responsibility. I mean, we weren't the ones who were starting that war. I mean, we weren't the ones who were sort of driving that. And sort of the refugees, unfortunately, become this kind of a group that is sort of to- uh, tossed around for political bargaining. And we see that in Turkey, we see that in Pakistan, we see elsewhere. And that sort of really frustrates people like myself and others of n- losing that humanity. Now, how do we change that? Well, we change that, first of all, through awareness and sort of uh, a genuine standing. I think we are living in a moment where there is reckoning about racial justice, about sort of inclusion. And I think that is important to recognize that that problem cannot just be in America as well, that racial injustice extends well beyond the borders of America or borders of Europe. So I think there's an opportunity to really say that, look, we would be doing this service to sort of the justice movement if we only focus it on a single city. I think that's absolutely important to focus in every city. But but there's a global sense of injustice that comes from racial discrimination, from colonialism and from from xenophobia. So I think that's the the opportunity. The other side of the equation, I think, is just as important is arguing historically. and, And even though data may or may not help, is the fact that refugees, refugee movement in any country, any country that you look at has not led to sort of the realization of the fears that are associated with it. Loss of jobs, increase in crime, all of those. That just hasn't happened. Right. So so I think that's important. And third thing I tell people and, and I try to practice it myself as well. I think a hostile or an aggressive attitude towards those who politically disagree with you is not going to win them over. I think one has to engage that just by sort of saying that, oh, these people are use your favorite sort of uh, word to to dismiss their views is not going to sort of really solve the problem. I think people have to hear each other and create that sense of decency, even when you strongly disagree, to be able to sort of try to work with them. I think if we are trying to really solve these issues, an increase in separation between this worldview and that worldview, this sort of political angle and that one is not going to solve the problems. It's only going to sort of drive a bigger and bigger wedge and then people sort of um, are not going to come to the table. So as much as I like science and engineering and technology, I don't think this is a technological problem. I think it's a problem of our fundamental humanity and knowing what we are and who we want to sort of really be as a group of people. Thanks so much to all of our guests today. I hope you found the podcast interesting. 
And as I said at the beginning, you can send all of your feedback to podcasts at lancet.com and we'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Lancet Voice and we'll see you again next time. <laughs>